Chicago, where skyscrapers are built on swampland, where parks are built on lakes, where a river is reversed. Chicago bends nature to its will, often triumphantly, but sometimes the city becomes helpless in the face of natural forces, and disaster sets in. And what I saw looked like the biggest bathtub drain ever. When they say your life can change in a split second, it can. The Tribune actually called it the alley of death and mutilation. For the next hour, you'll hear stories about some of those moments, floods, tornadoes, fires, that have left the city and the region puzzled, destroyed, and picking up the pieces. Coming up, Chicago disasters. Don't miss it. This podcast is sponsored by Marshall Field and Company, now offering disaster survival kits, especially designed for curious city listeners. Each kit includes one lightning bug powered lantern, a surplus first aid kit from Cook County Hospital, shark repellent from George Lawson and Sons, a week's worth of gym shoe sandwiches, water from the Schiller Woods Well, and a crank-powered radio permanently tuned to WBEZ Chicago Public Radio. Pick up your kit at the nearest Marshall Fields today. Chicago, the city that works. The Mississippi River doesn't quite meet the Great Lakes. Oh, not for long. Just a little too flat to drain the sewage? Don't worry, we'll raise the streets. Feeling choked for space? Oh, just build a park on the debris from that last fire. In the lake. Chicago, how did we even make it this far? Our city's existence is a series of things that shouldn't have worked but did. And as much as the city set itself up for success, it's also set itself up for disaster. I'm Logan Jaffe for WBEZ's Curious City. If you're unfamiliar, we take questions from people who live in the Chicago region about the Chicago region. And we answer them on the radio, online, and sometimes at live events, which is what you're about to hear. The Curious City team hosted 500 people at Chicago's Old Town School of Folk Music last March for a live show. It was great. We had a band, River Rising, amazing shadow puppet videos from our friends at Manual Cinema, guest interviews, all to answer questions from our listeners about Chicago disasters. And we wanted to share the experience with you. We'll run for about an hour, so just hang, listen, or pack an evacuation bag if you're feeling inspired. It's time for our first question. Hello, Curious City. This is John from Libertyville. Um, My question today is whether or not there's a secret system of railroad tunnels underneath the Chicago Loop area that helped contribute to the Great Flood back in the early 90s. I look forward to hearing your answer. Thank you. I'm Jesse Dukes, and there's so many of you. (laughs) Um, I can't see you. It's like doing radio. I bet a lot of you know the answer to John's question. Um, Yes, it is true. A system of underground train tunnels did lead to the great Chicago flood of 1992. I won't be able to see this, but were any of you there? Did any of you get evacuated? A couple people. Huh, maybe it didn't really happen. Um, (laughs) It's in the newspapers. 
Um, what was buried in the reporting at the time, um, and what you might not know, is those train tunnels were never supposed to be there in the first place. At least not if you're a stickler for little details like the law or <laughs> what the contract says. <laughs> and when you hear how the tunnels got there and how they were ignored and how they led to half of the loop being evacuated one day, it's this totally man-made natural disaster. And I think it's the most Chicago story ever. So the story of the 1992 flood starts 93 years earlier in 1899. There was a company called Illinois Telegraph and Telephone, or Telephone and Telegraph, anyway, IT&T, and they get permission from the city to build a telephone system in the loop, and they're going to offer the hottest new phone tech. Telephones with dials. <laughs> now their agreement lets them put phone cables underground in conduits or pipes, which would normally be like two or three inches, but for some reason they build these six-foot-tall tunnels. <laughs> and the city finds out, and IT&T just says, well, we need all that space to unspool, all that, all that telephone line. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then somebody at IT&T gets the idea that they can put mini railroad tracks in those tunnels and run these tiny little trains. See, they have this business idea. They're going to compete with the delivery carts in the loop. Um, back then, believe it or not, Chicago had worse traffic than it does today. Um, you had streetcars, horses, carts, people, some automobiles, and it, it could take like two hours to get from one end of the loop to the other. So an underground traffic-free train sounds brilliant. The only problem, they never got permission from City Hall to build train tunnels. <laughs> and City Hall is pissed. <laughs> They're not necessarily so angry that IT&T broke the rules, but because the aldermen and the mayor didn't get their cut. Remember I, how I said this was the most Chicago story ever? <laughs> but you know the old saying, it's easier to beg for forgiveness than to ask permission to build a railroad underground in Chicago in 1899. <laughs> it's an old saying where I come from. <laughs> Turns out to be true in this case, and so they reach a compromise, and poof, they are a legally licensed railroad company, now called Illinois Tunnel Company, ITC. They changed one letter. And they had the only underground freight railroad of its kind in the world, and they were so proud of it that when they were finished, they invited the press for a black tie event in the tunnels. <laughs> and they operated for over 50 years. Um, and they, they eventually had 60 miles of tunnels, mostly in the loop. And in their heyday, they had over 200 people and 83 trains. And think about that. 200 people underground delivering coal, taking the ash, taking garbage out, bringing furniture or mail or office supplies. That went on for a while, but the problem was traffic actually got better. Um, and underground trains just couldn't compete with delivery trucks. So in 1959, the tunnel company calls it quits and abandons the tunnels. 30 years go by. The city now owns the tunnels and almost totally ignores them. They have one guy who, along with some other jobs, keeps track of all 60 miles of tunnels, some of which go under the river. Okay, 
September 1991. Great Lakes Dredging, uh, a dredging company, is uh, working on uh, the piles in the Kinsey Street Bridge, and they asked permission to put a pile a few yards over from where the city plans had specified. And it's approved by a city engineer who apparently didn't look at a map of where the tunnels under the river go. So when Great Lakes drives that pile into the muck under the river, it apparently damages the ceiling of the tunnel at that Kinsey Street Bridge, and a small amount of water starts leaking in. October. The work is done, and a city engineer is sent to inspect all the sites where they were replacing piles. He goes to the bridges, you know, on like Cermak and Grand and Chicago Avenue, but he doesn't stop at Kinsey, at, uh, Kinsey Street because he can't find parking. <laughs> Most Chicago story ever. <laughs> December. The Chicago municipal government totally reorganizes for the sake of greater efficiency. January. A cable company is in the tunnels. They spot a bad leak. They call the one guy who keeps track of the tunnels, but after the reorganization, his phone number has changed and they can't find him. <laughs> February. They somehow get through to him, and he takes a look, but he can't find the leak. March. Something's nagging this guy, so he takes another look, and this time he finds the leak. He takes some photos, he shows them to his bosses, and he says, Hey, I think this is under the river. That could be really bad. Early April. <laughs> After a few weeks, the city gets a bid to repair the tunnel. $10,000. And they say, nah, that's too much. Let's go get a, a cheaper bid. Let's get a cheaper estimate. New contractors are scheduled to check out the tunnel on April 14th. Turns out it's a day too late. And to explain what happened on April 13th, we have a guest who was there, Larry Langford from the Chicago Fire Department. At the time, he was a radio reporter. Please welcome. So let's get on mic. You're a radio guy, too. I take the fifth. <laughs> so, Larry Langford, tell us, explain what you were doing the morning of April 13th. I worked for WMAQ Radio. I was the overnight reporter. I would report on mayhem, fires, shootings, and it was a dead morning. I couldn't find anything to talk about. <laughs> I was in a car with like 12 scanner radios, and I'm listening to every police district, streets and sand, fire, nothing is going on. I'm desperate. I start listening to all kinds of frequencies. I hear police dispatchers say there's reports of some water in some of the buildings along State Street. Sending some coppers to check it out. A few feet of water. I'm going, well, eh, water main break. Okay. After a few minutes, I hear more calls. Other businesses. Several stores. Marshall Fields. It's now three or four feet of water in the basement. Now this is getting interesting. I might have something here. <laughs> So I switch over and listen to the water department. They're kind of scrambling. They think they got a water main break. So they send some crews out to LaSalle Street. There's a 42-inch water main under LaSalle. They take the big wrench. They're trying to shut it down, thinking that's where the leak is coming from. They turn it off. Still more reports come in. Seven feet of water in the basement. Ten feet. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> so I start listening to the, the private security channels from the different stores and places in Chicago. 
and I'm listening to the Merchandise Mart security, and they're saying they've got water in the basement of the Merchandise Mart. But then I hear what was really news to my ears as a newsman. Hey, there's fish in this water. <laughs> Well, that ain't coming from the water department. <laughs> right, let, let's explain that. Um, the water main comes after the filtration plant. Yes, right? yes. So if there's fish, if there was fish, what did that make you think? It ain't coming from the water main. <laughs> so what'd you do? So I decided to go over to the water, over to the uh, merchandise mart where I could hear the radio traffic better and see what's really going on. So I go over there, and the Merchandise Mart is near the Kinsey Street Bridge. It, just to be clear, are you aware of the tunnel system at this point? Do you know? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, knew the, I knew the tunnel system. I had been in it. But I went over, and I started listening, and there's more and more water coming in. And now they're talking about a lot of fish in the water. <laughs> so I said, well, fish, mart, river, bridge, eh. <laughs> I got out of the car, and I went over to the bridge. And I looked down. And what I saw looked like the biggest bathtub drain ever. <laughs> there was a swirl of water about 10 feet across with debris in it, and it looked like a giant drain. Ran back to the car and got on the, on the microphone. There, put me on the air, put me on, put me on. What do you got? Just put me on the radio. So I go on the air, and I said something like, I may have found the source of the water problem in downtown Chicago. <laughs> It may be the Chicago River itself. <laughs> I'm looking at the Kinsey Street Bridge, and below I see what looks like the world's largest drain. Somebody ought to wake the mayor up. <laughs> About eight minutes after that report, sirens, fire department, police department, streets and sand, black city cars with officials and cigars. And the first thing I did was, get out of here. So I left. Where'd you go? To the other side of the river. <laughs> you went to the other side of the river, and what'd you see? I saw the crews were looking at the swirl, scratching their head. Uh, a few expletives were being used. It was a sideshow. Pickups started coming. Dump trucks started coming. They opened up a hole uh, by the Kinsey Street Bridge, and they started dropping mattresses in. <laughs> all kinds of junk trying to stop the flow of water. Why, why mattresses? Someone thought they would expand <laughs> and, and seal up the hole. <laughs> Not exactly. I want to pause you right there. So Larry is on the other side of the river watching this effort to plug this hole. Meanwhile, um, I want to pay a little bit of attention to what was going on south of where you were in the loop, in the actual business district. So all that water that Larry saw swirling <laughs> into the tunnels, it started flooding. Of course, it's flooding into the basements of the skyscrapers in the loop because the tunnels are still connected to all those buildings from the old tunnel company days, from the, from the railroad days. And so some of these buildings have three or four sub-basements. They get up to 40 feet of water. And the city decides to shut down 
power to most of the loop because they're worried about accidents or explosions or, or something like that. And so you have tens of thousands of office workers having to evacuate because they don't have any power. Um, 15,000 some odd people walking down up to 100 flights in the Sears Tower. They called it the Sears Tower uh, because they don't want to get stuck in the elevator. The subway stopped running. The CTA sends extra buses to the loop uh, just to get everybody home for the day um, because there's no there's no subway. Um, they have uh, there's stories of trainee cops on their very first day on the job out there directing traffic, um, and and by all accounts the city did a really good job. Uh, it all went pretty smoothly. Nobody no, nobody was hurt. People got home, um, and and there was another radio reporter on the scene that day. A lot of radio reporters in this story. Um, this was a 31-year-old up-and-coming NPR reporter, and he went to the Sears Tower to report on the evacuation. And this is a story he told about it a few years later at a conference. There was this couple with really little kids, and they had been driving from Iowa on their way to visit family in Michigan. And so they're not from Chicago, they're not from the suburbs. And, they, and, and what I do is I see this, this family, and I go, oh, like, are you in town like, going, you know, going to the department stores or something, or going to the Art Institute? And they're like, oh, well, we were just driving by Chicago on the Kennedy, on the expressway, and um, we thought, oh, well, it's near lunchtime. Let's bring the kids in for lunch, and they'll get to see the city. And they're like, is, is the traffic always like this? And I was like, no, you don't understand. The city is being evacuated. <laughs> like, they had no idea. Like, they're like, God, it's so, we knew it was really busy in here in the big city. I'm going to say, like, it's a, you're seeing like a million people in an emergency evacuation of downtown. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was Ira Glass. Um, Ira, uh, at that same conference, he told another story and had another insight that was actually lost in a lot of the reporting that I, I saw and read about this, this flood. Nobody else said that it was really a fun day the day that everybody got off work early. Like, everybody got off work at 1 o'clock. Their employers still had to pay them. Trains and buses run for free. You go home. Like, people were in the greatest mood. It was like completely, it made you feel great about the city of Chicago. It was beautiful outside. It was just like a great, great day. And like it was, you know, the Merck shut down and, you know, business shut down. And that's, that's a big problem in, in the economy of a city. Like, like, if it wasn't your job to clean up the tunnel, if you didn't own a skyscraper, if you weren't the owner of a business, and believe me, most people are not, and like it was a great kind of day, you know. All right. So to be to be clear, the city never was able to stop the the leak per se. They basically just let it leak as much as it wanted to, you know, until the the water was more or less even with the level of the river, and there wasn't really any pressure coming in. And then they were able to put some steel doors down, and then eventually pump the water out from all the basements. Um, and some people could go back to work the next week. I think other people were out for weeks, you know, after that. Um, and so Larry, I've got to, I just got to think that you're cruising around, you know about the tunnels, you're listening to the police scanners, you're, you're spying on the security people. It's like you were in training <laughs> to report this story. Everything kind of came together on a morning that ended up being very exciting, but started off being just absolutely dead. <laughs> and you're the one who figured it out. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It was kind of fun. It was kind of fun. And nobody got hurt. Nobody got hurt. It was a, it was a, it was a fun time. It was exciting to do it. Uh, and it's something I'll just never forget. I have one more point I want to make. Um, you remember how I said I thought this story might be the most Chicago story ever? I'd like to review we have something buried underground that makes trouble later. 
We have the Chicago River moving in a strange new direction. We have the city ignoring the tunnels for 30 years. We have all those city employees helping ensure a smooth and safe evacuation of the loop. Very nice work. Um, and we have those engineers dragging their feet getting the leak fixed. We have a beleaguered defensive mayor. Uh, I, that's actually kind of another story, but believe me, we had a beleaguered defensive mayor. Um, and I learned one more point while I was researching this. Um, so in 1992, the Chicago tunnel flood, we had 250 million gallons of water flood into the tunnels and basements in Chicago, and it was believed to be the largest underground flood in American city. It was, until 2012 when Hurricane Sandy caused flooding in New York's subway system with an estimated 500 million gallons of water coming in. So, we're second to New York. <laughs> How could it be more Chicago than that? That was Curious City audio producer Jesse Dukes and Larry Langford from the Chicago Fire Department. A man-made disaster by all accounts. How do you just forget there are miles of tunnels under the river? The 1992 flood could have been avoided, clearly. But some disasters are unavoidable. That's coming up next on WBEZ's Curious City Disaster Special, recorded live at the Old Town School of Folk Music. Where you're evacuated from work on a random weekday Sweet home, Chicago Support for Curious City's Disaster Special comes from Daily's Choice Mattresses. Daily's Choice Mattresses are delivered to your barge or pickup in a compact compressed package ready to expand to plug any hole or leak you can throw them at. Daly's Choice trademarked extra-absorbent foam will expand to three times the size of our competitors, ensuring that when your underground tunnels flood, Daly's Choice is your new best bud. We are back with WBEZ Curious City's Disaster Show, recorded live at the Old Town School of Folk Music. I'm Logan Jaffe. We just answered listener John Foley's question about what started the 1992 Chicago flood. It was pretty hilarious. A slapsticky series of human errors, city government style. But we're taking a turn now to something a bit more sinister. Sociological. Cyclonic, if you will. Let's hear the question. Hi there. I am Erin English Bailey, and I live in the Edgewater neighborhood in Chicago. I have been wondering for a long time about tornadoes in Chicago. Lots of Chicagoans firmly believe that a tornado can't happen here. Why is that? Why do they think that? And are they right? I'm pretty skeptical. So can a tornado happen here? Thanks for getting to the bottom of this. Producer Chloe Prasinos takes it on. One of the first things I noticed when I started my investigation was that this sentiment that Aaron references, that <laughs> Chicago is somehow immune from a tornado, that's very real. Um, 
as soon as I started my research, it seemed like I was bumping into this idea everywhere. Uh, it just came up randomly in a conversation with a friend one day. Another time I was in an Uber and the driver was like, yeah, no, a tornado won't happen here. No way, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so here's my theory. Many Chicagoans think that the story of a tornado is a rural story. We picture a funnel cloud ripping through cornfields and busting up barns. Our city doesn't look like that. We've got glass and concrete to protect us. <laughs> We're removed from nature, and so we think that nature won't visit us. Then I stumbled into the piece of tape I'm about to play for you. Uh, it was recorded in Oaklawn, Illinois, a Chicago suburb just across the southwest border of the city nestled between Beverly and Midway Airport. In the tape, you'll hear the voice of a man named Robert Key. He was the manager of a theater in Oaklawn, and he was also an aspiring radio broadcaster. So when he heard a storm was blowing in, he picked up his audio kit and walked outside to get some practice. So what's happening now is the lights are dimmed, the audio is cranked pretty bass-heavy. It's dark besides text on the screen that follows the recording. It's creepy. 5.26 p.m. Oaklawn, Illinois. Friday, April the 21st, this day, the people in Oaklawn say that the tornado you just heard is the defining moment in the village's history. And remember, Oaklawn is literally next door. This storm was the deadliest tornado ever to hit the Chicago area. 33 people were killed that day. 500 were injured. By some estimates, there were $50 million in damages. The storm also did damage on the south side of Chicago before tearing across the Dan Ryan Expressway during rush hour. 
tipping a tractor trailer and spinning out over Lake Michigan. I invited a meteorologist and storm chaser to help me debunk the urban myth at the center of Aaron's question. Please welcome Professor Victor Gensini of the College of DuPage. I must say that's the first time I've ever seen grape size hail ever reported <laughs> in the storm database. That was interesting. <laughs> All right, so let's get this question out of the way. Is Chicagoland vulnerable to tornadoes in your professional opinion? Uh, it's, there's no question. You look back in history, 1896, largest tornado actually hit the downtown business district. In the early 1900s, we've had very close calls to the business district itself. We just saw the recap of the 1967 Oak Lawn tornado. In 1965, on Palm Sunday, we had tornadoes in the Chicagoland area. And then probably the most infamous that many people remember in here was the Plainfield, Illinois tornado in 1990. We are extremely vulnerable to tornadoes in Chicago. People don't really understand or realize that. And about half of all incoming students in my meteorology classes think it is impossible for a tornado to hit downtown Chicago. And if you were to survey people on the street on Michigan Avenue on a, on a bright, sunny day and ask them the question, do tornadoes or can tornadoes hit Chicago, the majority of them are probably going to say no. And the answer is yes, overwhelmingly. So let's get to the bottom of some of those reasons that people cite when they say that Chicago is protected from tornadoes. I know you're familiar with these myths. I'm going to pitch them up. You want to knock them down? Let's do it. Okay. All right. Myth number one, Lake Michigan protects us by acting as a Ooh. bubble or shield. That's a scary one because it actually does in the early spring. So in the early spring, this time of the year, March and April, the lake is cold enough to have a deterrent effect to actually mitigate the chance of tornadoes. Now, once you get into May and June, that lake breeze comes in on shore and it actually enhances the tornado threat in many cases. So you don't want to believe that the, the lake is an absolute uh, you know, protective mechanism against tornadoes because it's actually not at all. Okay, so myth number two Tall buildings create some kind of buffer because they're so tall and close together. <laughs> the, 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 so <laughs> so the, the building argument is an interesting one. If you look back in history to uh, large cities that have been hit by tornadoes, their buildings actually cause worse damage as the wind is accelerated through the urban canyons. Anybody who's ever walked downtown and get the name the Windy City off the lake, the air is accelerated from the Bernoulli principle through these, these can the urban canyons. The buildings are actually, if you were in a building, it would be one of the worst places to be as you would be sort of in the tornado with glass breaking. It would be a very, very bad thing, but they are absolutely not mechanisms to protect you uh, or, or stop a tornado. Let, let me just say that a, a tornado doesn't care what it's hitting, okay? Uh, <laughs> All right, and the third myth has its own name the urban heat island effect. Would you explain what that is? Sure. So all of the pavement that we have around Chicago, of course, uh, it, it has something called an albedo, not a libido, okay? The albedo of Chicago. The albedo of Chicago is actually the fact that the incoming sunlight actually absorbs all that energy and sort of holds on to it and creates a temperature anomaly over the city. And some people think that there's this heat bubble over the Chicago, right, that would somehow stop these storms as they come in. And if that would do anything in our modeling study, it would actually increase the intensity of storms, not decrease. So the urban heat island myth is, is definitely busted. I feel like myth busters up here. No plausible, busted. 
All right, so none of those myths offer us any kind of protection. Would you lay it out for me? How likely is it that a bad tornado will hit downtown Chicago? Uh, These are extremely low probability events. They're very small scale. People think of tornadoes as these big things, but in the atmosphere, they're very, very small. And their paths of damage are often only a couple hundred yards wide. Okay, and they only last maybe 10 to 20 minutes if you're lucky. So these are very low probability events. And if you think of a dartboard, okay, uh, these tornado events, you're, you're kind of just closing your eyes and throwing them at a dartboard. And, and the city center would be Chicago, the sort of dartboard. So and we so, have a slide to illustrate that idea. Can we throw it up? Sure. Yeah, so this would be sort of the size of Chicago in 1940, okay? So ignore the east side of the lake. We're not talking about tornadoes in the lake. But in 1940, okay, the the, the size of Chicago would be a relatively small bullseye on the dartboard. And as we go through time, we, of course, have urban sprawl, especially on the western fringes. And by the next slide, which is 2000, of course, the city grows larger. Okay, extrapolate that into the future. Now we have... Uh, 2050, and now the bullseye is getting larger, of course, mainly on the western edges. Now, we're not talking about the business district itself. We're talking about the dense commercial or residential uh, neighborhoods that are sort of sprawling on the west side. So places like Elgin, Kane County, out on the western suburbs. And then by if we have to sort of extrapolate this out to 2100, you're closing your eyes and you're throwing that dart, which is that black tornado path, at a much larger bullseye. And eventually, probability is going to catch up with you. And so you've written about the Plainfield, Illinois tornado as an example of the dartboard analogy. The Plainfield tornado in 1990 was an interesting case. This was a tornado that sort of broke all of the myths. It came from northwest and moved southeast rather than the southwest to northeast pass that many people think tornadoes take. Plainfield's population in 1990 was about 5,000 people. Okay. Um, if you have looked at Google Earth recently uh, over the area of Plainfield, it's a, the population now is about five times larger than that. And uh, we had a close call last year. People don't really realize that. The Fairdale tornado out by Rochelle, if you just bring that into Cook County and you take it at the right path through Chicago, you're talking about billions of dollars in damage. And not to mention if there were people in rush hours stuck on the expressways, um, this has long been one of my greatest fears, is a significant or violent tornado moving through Chicago during rush hour. And it's a a serious thing that we have to think about. It's a low probability event, um, but it can happen. And if you think of the three largest cities, New York, LA, and Chicago, uh, Chicago by far has the highest risk or probability for a tornado event. So we could easily say, that Chicago is actually the most vulnerable city in the world to tornadoes. It's pretty incredible. (laughs) At the top of the story, you heard what a tornado sounds like, but it's also important to hear from those who lived through the devastation. So I tracked down three people who survived the tornado that swept through Oaklawn in 1967, our near neighbor to the south. When I remember that day, I still can remember a physical feeling of electricity, like on my skin and all over my body. So I actually was on the upstairs level in the bathroom taking a shower when someone just kept banging on the door, get out now. That's all I can remember, get out out now. I was home from Nam, Vietnam for six days when the Oakland tornado hit, and it hit. When they say your life can change in a split second, it can, and it does. We couldn't help 
but notice the sky out the window. It was green. It was puffy. It was churning. And I remember my mom saying, Ernie, look at that sky. I went outside because I wanted to see what it looked like. Our ears popped. And the trees were going crazy. You saw the leaves turn upside down. And then it got very quiet. You could almost hear a pin drop. That's how calm and quiet it got. And there was a stillness, a stillness that I haven't felt since. And it sounded like It's like a, a freight, freight train. train coming through. And the rain stopped. You felt the living room start to shake. Boom. Boom. It hits. All we had time to do was react. My dad ran to the dining room window and said, everybody get in the basement. And I stood out and watched it. Everybody else was hiding. I came out of a war. What can hurt me? There were four of us trying to huddle under this counter. So we were all shoulder to shoulder. So we held hands. We were in a circle. And I pictured myself dying. I pictured the house falling on me. And I pictured myself in a grave. All we heard was a very faint tinkling of glass, as if maybe a neighbor's window had broken very light. That's all we heard. The top part of the house just sort of exploded outward, and things went everywhere. I just remember a lot of chalky sawdust in my mouth. And we started saying the Our Father. I woke up. Our Father who art in heaven. Not being able to move. I was kind of pinned by just debris, just things that had landed on me. Give us this day our day. I was right. trying to scream us to let somebody know I was there. Against us. Nobody else responded and but my dad. And my dad said, deliver us from evil. stop screaming and start praying. Amen. Shortly after the storm was over, I went up to the police and fire department. I said, what do you need? He said, Bob, go home and get your army uniform on. I said, why? Because you're a medic. We need you. The next thing I remember was waking up in the hospital. We, I still didn't even understand then what had happened. The hospitals were so crowded. We'd bring a patient in, find a cot. Okay, we'll be back with another one. It was like a war zone. There were people filled with blood. People were walking around literally dazed. There were roller skates. We didn't under, We didn't realize that the roller rink had been hit. So my dad crept up the stairs and, you know, opened the basement door and I just heard him say, oh, oh my, my God. God, we were totally hit. My youngest brother was racing to get down the stairs. That's about as far as he got when the tornado hit. They found him about a half a block away, still with a piece of the railing inside his hand. My brother would be like, oh, yeah, you know, I was Superman. I could fly. Every window in the house was broken. There was debris. All inside the house, our garage was gone, the car was gone, and then it snowed the next day. The next day, my dad and I went back to the house, and we stood there and just stared at it. It looked like a war zone with snow on top of it, very calm and quiet. I can remember looking up at my dad, and he was crying, and it was like, this was my house, and it's gone I have not let go of it yet. It's now almost 49 years later. It's not going anywhere if it hasn't gone anywhere by now. It's something that stays with you, and you will not get rid of it, believe me. If you ever saw one, you'll go with you to your grave. The storm that Patty Ernst, Jody Marneris, and Bob Philbin are describing, it was just one tornado in a sp- bait of storms that hit Illinois that same day. In Belvedere, a different tornado hit just as school was being let out. It picked up school buses and just 
tossed them. 24 people were killed, 13 of them high schoolers. So Victor, you're a weather expert and not an expert in human behavior, but speculate for me, why does the myth that a tornado won't hit our city persist if it so clearly has hit the Chicago land region? That's a great question. It comes back to complacency. Um, complacency is the feeling that something can't happen to you. And these events are extremely rare. We have to face that. You know, these they're not things that happen every week or every month or even every year. And you're lucky sometimes in terms of probability to get them uh, once every 10 years or even sometimes 50 years. And so when something doesn't happen for a long time or you're repeatedly warned, ooh, a tornado watch or a tornado warning, pay attention, it's a very difficult problem. You're trying to forecast something that's very small, short-lived, and when these events do happen, they might even happen three or four blocks north of your location, okay? But they didn't happen to you. And until they happen to you, you don't realize, you don't hear these stories, right, until it happens to you and then you create that story. And so it's an issue of complacency and we need to do a better job of education and letting people know that, yes, indeed, Chicago is not only vulnerable, it's probably one of the most vulnerable cities in the world. So it's all about complacency and education, absolutely. Well, thanks for the safety thank reminder. Thank you so much, Chloe. Yeah, thanks for coming. Here. And thank you to Oaklawn Public Library, who provided most of the archival images that you saw. That was reporter Chloe Prasinos and guest Victor Gensini, a meteorologist, storm chaser, and professor at the College of DuPage. You heard it here first, folks. Tornadoes can hit Chicago. Write it down, then underline it, then circle it a bunch of times. But if tornadoes are disasters that can't be prevented, up next, a story about a disaster that Chicago could and definitely should have prevented. That's next on this Disasters special from WBEZ's Curious City. Stay with us. And those dreams that you dare to dream Support for Curious City's Disaster Special comes from the Windy Television Network. Windy TV's new series, Chicago Mythcrackers, starts this week. In the first episode, our team of roguish, myth-cracking scientists prove, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that a tornado could never, ever hit Chicago. Chicago Mythcrackers, Tuesday nights at 9 on the Windy TV Network. And we're back for more of WBEZ Curious City's Disaster Show, recorded live at the Old Town School of Folk Music. I'm Logan Jaffe, and this last disaster happened more than a century ago. There are no witnesses to tell the tale, no descendants still mourning a loss. There's barely a mention of it in textbooks, much less a memorial. I reported an answer to this one, so I'll technically be hosting my own self for a couple minutes. Uh, Anyway, enough from host me. I'll return as live show me after we hear the question. It might seem unrelated, but I promise it's not. Hi, my name's Paul Vaccarello. I live in Humboldt Park. Uh, My question was, what is the most haunted place in Chicago? And while that doesn't sound like it has anything to do with disasters, 
we actually ended up learning about a pretty big disaster that took place in Chicago. So I hope you enjoy the story. Thanks. When Paul asked us this question about Chicago's most haunted spot back in the spring of 2014, we should have guessed we would stumble right into disaster stories. Because, I mean, aren't all ghosts born from disasters? We found ourselves walking through an alley off of Randolph Street in the Loop one night. It was October, and I think there was a blood moon. And Paul and I were talking with a guy named Adam Seltzer, who gives ghost tours in the city. But the alley we were in wasn't just any alley. It had a name. Right now, we are in an alley that the Chicago Tribune once called the Alley of Death and Mutilation. So, I, maybe this is an obvious question here, but uh, what the heck? <laughs> Roughly twice as many people as are known to have died in the Great Chicago Fire, died in like a 15-minute blaze in this building, many of them out here in this alley. Oh, that's creepy. So, to understand what happened there, and why that place became the site of one of Chicago's greatest disasters, we have to go back to 1903, to a theater called the Iroquois. It stood right where the Oriental Theater is now. All the playbills had been advertising the Iroquois Theater, absolutely fireproof. <laughs> and the hell of it is, the building was pretty much fireproof. It was just all the things they had put inside of it that were not. Like the interior decorations, lots of wood. Scenery, canvas, 1,600 seats stuffed with hemp. And the fire curtain wasn't exactly fireproof. And here to tell the story of the disaster as it happened that afternoon, and this is the voice you've been hearing in the tape, uh, please welcome Adam Seltzer. This is Harriet Wolf. Her father, Ludwig, is one of the biggest toilet and plumbing supply dealers in town. Maybe you've seen his elaborate tomb at Graceland Cemetery. Harriet and several family members line up outside of the Iroquois Theater to see the first show they had running, Mr. Bluebeard, a musical comedy review about a guy who kills his wives and hangs them up on meat hooks in his closet. A children's Christmas show. <laughs> They're among 2,000 people who line up that day to see Eddie Foy sing Hamlet Was a Melancholy Dane and watch Nellie Reed drop artificial flowers on people's heads from a trapeze. But the theater only holds about 1,600. People are taking seats in the aisle or on steps. The show is a gorgeous spectacle with a cast of hundreds and such immortal songs as Come and Buy Our Luscious Fruits, A Most Unpopular Potentate, and This Let Us Swear by the Pale Moonlight. Softly give the signal for the ladies to appear. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. Just a little louder, boys, in case they didn't hear. Da, 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 da. About halfway through Act 2, a calcium light catches the drapes on fire. And this has happened before. Usually the fire will burn its way up to the top of the drapes and then burn itself out. This time it starts to catch on the scenery that's hanging in the rafters. More than 100 pieces of canvas, mostly painted with oil-based paint. 75,000 feet of freshly oiled rope. Now, the vents have been closed, so when the actors open up the backstage door, that creates a backdraft which catches on the flames on stage and turns them into what people describe as a balloon of fire. But the fire isn't as deadly as the rush to get out. Just imagine that you're sitting in this theater. Eddie Foy is still on stage singing a song to keep you calm. You just saw a fireball shoot out at your head. You rush up to an exit and can't figure out how to get it unlocked. 
You run into the main lobby thinking you can break through the doors, but they open in towards the lobby instead of out towards the street, so instead of crashing through the doors, you crash into them. The people behind you crash into you. Things aren't better on the balcony. There's only one hallway that lower, leads to the lower level, and the owner has blocked that off with a metal accordion gate. And the fire escapes are only built to hold a few people at a time. Within 15 minutes, the theater is gutted. Roughly 600 people have been crushed to death, burned alive, or thrown over the rails to the alley below. Well, thank you so much, Adam. Um, and obviously, this is a very tragic and disastrous event. But from what I understand, it seems like the, the aftermath is disastrous as well. What are some of like, the key points that make the aftermath so disastrous? Well, for one thing, it was just chaos. They had, there were piles of bodies that some people said were about six feet high out in the alley, and the Tribune actually called it the Alley of Death and Mutilation. They have fire escapes, but they were basically useless. They were built to hold a few people at a time. And then once they had all of these bodies, they had to figure out what to do with them and how to identify them and then figure out who to hold responsible for all of this. So, so let's take uh, these points kind of one by one. And you brought up treatment of bodies. Why was that a disaster? Just having so many of them. Some of the first people who got inside of the building were not rescue workers or firefighters. is what they used to call ghouls, guys who were yanking necklaces off of necks, ripping earrings out of ears. According to this out-of-town paper, uh, they actually caught a guy cutting women's fingers off to get their rings faster. And then they pinned him down and cut his hand off. I'm not sure if that one's true or not. It's from an out-of-town paper. But <laughs> okay, well, regardless. Yeah, well, what, what, and also the, the jewelry that had been stolen, so in a lot of cases, that was the only way to make a positive ID on who the bodies really were. Right, so, so that's, that's the next question I have. So <laughs> with all of this, how did people even keep track of who is who? How did they even try? As best they could. With something like 600 known deaths, a lot of people were burned beyond recognition. A lot of times they just had to do the best they could among the family members. And for years there were rumors about false identifications, people buried under the wrong name, people still being alive someplace. And thinking about you know all of the things that made you know, the disaster, disaster, and then the aftermath, also a disaster. You have people cutting corners in the theater itself, yeah. bodies being stacked in an alley. You have ghouls. Nobody was held accountable for this? Like, did anybody no. actually have you know, a consequence? The, the newspapers were out for blood. They pushed for the mayor to be arrested, the building inspector, the owner, Will Davis, obviously. And a lot of them were arrested, but the courts ruled that the way that the fire codes were written, they were not enforceable laws. They were really just suggestions. Okay. So everybody got off on technicalities, except for one guy who was arrested for stealing a watch. But, but obviously it's not quite like that today. Like the rules are, are rules, not just suggestions. And there were some policy outcomes after this. Can you explain a little bit about what those were? Well, all over the world. They shut down every theater in the city the next day. The same thing happened in New York, Paris. Uh, Kaiser Bill himself shut down every theater in Berlin so they could uh, reevaluate and see what was going on wrong. Because it wasn't just Chicago. Practically every theater in the world was a fire trap in those days. Wow. And because of this, it, it shouldn't have taken a disaster to get it to people to start taking these rules seriously. A lot of the rules were already on the books. Nobody was following them. And it shouldn't have taken as a disaster, but you know, you can look around right now. We've got the exit signs are lit. 
unlike what they were in the Iroquois Theater. You can see the doors open out towards the lobby, and they've got the crash bar on there instead of some weird uh, French-style locking mechanism that they had installed. Okay, so good. <laughs> it's, uh, so we are. So it shouldn't take a disaster to get to this point, but we are safer right now because of this disaster. Adam's right. It shouldn't take a disaster. We shouldn't let hundreds of people die in a fire because the fire escape doesn't work. Or assume tornadoes somehow spare cities. Or forget where we put all those darned tunnels all those years ago. But give them some time, and disasters can be useful opportunities to re-examine the mistakes we've made to cause them. And maybe the more we remember, learn, and own up to the reasons behind them, maybe they'll be less likely to happen again. (laughs) Not. (laughs) This is Chicago. There's no moral to the story, which is why I'd prefer us to linger on some of the more useful and realistic learning moments from this hour-long special instead. One, if you see fish in your basement, you ought to wake the mayor. Two, when the sky turns green and starts churning, just keep chilling on the porch. It's cool. Three, theater shows in the early 1900s were really kid-friendly. Four, thanks to our curious and at times paranoid questioners for posing questions about disasters. And you know, you can always submit your own question about anything related to Chicago, the region, and the people who live here at wbez.org slash Curious City. If you like us, subscribe to Curious City's weekly podcast and follow everything we do. Head to wbez.org slash Curious City. Thanks to Robert Anderson for production this hour. Special thanks also to the Chicago History Museum, the Oaklawn Public Library, Manual Cinema, and River Rising. Support for Curious City comes from the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.